We're in Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The series that we were in for Advent is Hope Has Come. And we have been talking about that hope that's come in different dimensions in Romans chapter 8. I said to you that a year ago, as we came into Advent and had an Advent series, that there was something that I hope you took away from that. And that is that we don't understand everything there is about suffering. I don't understand that. And the longer I pastor, the less I know, really, about why things line up in the ways they do in people's lives. I just realized that even what I thought I knew, I didn't. I don't understand why things come into people's lives and why they come in concentrated ways in some families and not others. But the thing that helps me is I said, this is what I hope you took away a year ago, and it stayed with you, it stayed with me, is that the incarnation is about that God didn't stay away from it, that he entered into that brokenness fully. And though I don't understand all of the questions, I can't answer them all. What I do know is the God that I trust entered fully into the brokenness. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He felt it all. And for now, that's enough for me. And it helps me when I enter into brokenness in people's lives to tell them that. This year, what I said I hope you take away from Advent in this series that hope has come is this, that every ounce of suffering... Every ounce of suffering in the life of a believer, God will use for good. Every ounce. There will not be a wasted ounce of suffering in your life if you are a believer that God will not turn and work for good in your life. I hope that is riveted into your soul. And if you're wrestling with it, you'll continue to wrestle with it and look to Scripture. That's what I think Romans 8 says. God is for us. Works all things to good to them that love God. are called according to His purpose. Now, there's an opposite side of that. If you're not in Christ, I can't give you that guarantee. I cannot give you any guarantees outside of being in Christ. Outside of your hope resting in Him. But if it's in Him... If you're trusting Him, if when you sang that song, all I have is Christ, that is the reality of your life and your heart. Every ounce, God is working for good in your life. Now, I want to just walk back through these weeks quickly and then then wrap it all up at the end. And we're going to come to the Lord's table. 
we talked about hope coming. First of all, hope that reverses the futility. Remember week one? Or actually week two. Pastor Jason had week one. Week two, hope that reverses the futility. This world is broken. And the Bible says in verse 20 of chapter 8, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. And the point we made is that God is the one who did the subjecting because only God does something hopefully. The enemy of our soul does not do it in hope. And so the reference here is that God subjected the creation, all creation, to futility because of sin. Again, the answers to why is because we don't understand how bad sin is. Sin is horrific. It is a horrific affront to the glory of God. And most of the questions we have, I think, ultimately about suffering, are we don't understand sin. But God says He subjected it to futility in hope that He was going to reverse that futility for His people. And that is the hope we have. C.S. Lewis made a statement that I think is, is apropos for this time of year as we've come through Advent, we've come through Christmas, we've come through New Year's, and now it's January. And it's cold outside. And there's snow everywhere. And unless you're like Joel Stewart, you don't like it very much. You don't like winter. And C.S. Lewis made a statement. He said, always winter, but never Christmas. That's what this futility is. Always winter, but never Christmas. For us who live in the northern lands, we understand that, don't we? Part of winter is Christmas. And for most, Christmas is, a, is, a, is a, a lighter time. Not for all, I understand, but for many it's a lighter time. But Lewis, what he was saying is, we, it's always winter but never Christmas. In other words, this life will never fully satisfy. No matter how good it is, no matter how many good things you have in life, no matter what things you've experienced in life, there is always at the end of that a sense that something else is something's missing, or there's something more. That's because of the futility. This life will never fully satisfy. If you're come to this time of year and you have a letdown, it's part of the futility. You go into Christmas with expectations. Those expectations get dashed in many ways because they were too high of expectations. They didn't build in the futility. And that doesn't mean there weren't some good things that we can enjoy. But you will not get out of this life everything you want. And that's because it's been subjected to futility. And when you don't get what you want, you don't get what you really are, are looking for fully, what that should do is say to you there is something more. That's the hope part of it. That's what God has subjected this creation to futility in hope. That one day, those longings and those things that lack now because of the futility and the frustration will have a fulfillment. There's coming a time, and we've talked about that. We're not going to go back over that, but the new heavens and the new earth. There's a coming together one day of the heavens and the earth, and I believe, as we said, that heaven is more continuity than discontinuity of what we know now. It's not harps and clouds and ethereal kinds of stuff that many of the pictures are of heaven. But heaven is a coming together of heaven and earth, and heaven will be a restoration 
think that's what the whole idea of the futility is. That creation is waiting for the restoration. A restoration free of all of the taintings of sin upon it. And so the hope that we have is that God will one day release us from futility. That we will experience all that God has for us without lack one day on the earth. In the new heavens and the new earth. I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, not the Sunday that I spoke, but it just keeps coming back to me. I just think there's going to be such, such sorrow one day when, when people think and realize that what they held on to so tightly in this life, what they could not let go of for the sake of the eternal, will one day be given to all those who let it go. I think there's just going to be such sorrow one day. I think we, we hold so tightly to this temporal 70 or 80 years if we have the strength. And we think, oh, if I give this up, if, if I let this go, and all of a sudden, the eternal will open up and we'll see that continuity less than discontinuity. And there's going to be great sorrow in that one day when they realize what they spent for a few years now and have given up for eternity. I say that to you young people. I know when you're young, it's hard. 70 or 80 years thinks like a long time. But nobody's even guaranteed that. But if you get it all, that's what you get. Build your heart. Build your heart toward God. Build your heart to the hope that all of this futility will one day be released. And whenever you feel that futility, might it point you to the release from that one day in a new heavens and a new earth. The second thing that we talked about is that we said, then how do we wait? I mean, if, if that's coming, if it's going to be re- we're going to be released from this utility, what do we do now? Because we're still here, if you're here this morning. And I think there's help in this passage. It says in verse 26, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In other words, it goes back to a little bit of a a year ago at Advent where God entered into the brokenness, but He continues to be in the brokenness. When Christ returned to the Father, He sent His Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, is dwelling in His people. And the Scripture says that He prays for us in our weakness. Another thing as I get older and older in the faith, is I realize more my weakness. I realize the times when I just don't even know how to pray for sure. There are times and situations more than I ever imagined in my life as I see the complicatedness of life, the complicatedness of pastoring of people. What do I pray for? How do I pray? What is the best thing to to ask God? And I have to admit, a lot of times I don't know that. My desire is, I hope more and more, that Christ would be magnified. I hope that's your desire. That, that's one of the evidences that you have the first fruits of the Spirit, that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You have a desire that God would be glorified, that Christ would be magnified in your life. If there's nowhere for that to be found in your life, there's something wrong. Because one of the evidence of we've come to faith is we begin to see the glory of God and we begin to want others to see the glory of God. And so we have a desire that Christ would be magnified. But what do we do when difficult things come into our life and we don't know how He can best be glorified? 
I use the example of when illness comes. Now, God can heal. He can give us a foretaste. It's, it's only a temporary thing, a foretaste of what He's going to do perfectly one day. He can do that. And there are all kinds of testimonies of people who've been healed. But it's only momentary. It's only temporary because unless Christ comes, you're going to die. You're still going to get sick again. So any kind of healing is just for a moment. It's a foretaste of a perfect healing God's going to give us one day. But God can do that. But sometimes God chooses rather that He will be great, have greater glory and gain greater glory in our lives by giving us the grace to endure what He has sent into our lives. Not heal us, but give us sustaining grace. So, so what do we do? Do we pray for healing? Do we pray for sustaining grace? That's when the groaning comes in. That's when we say, God, I don't know for sure how to pray, but the groanings of the Spirit begin to pray. And and ultimately, over the top of that, overarching all of that is, Christ be magnified. If the desire of your heart for Christ to be magnified in your life, you can be confident that the Spirit will pray what needs to be prayed to the Father. That gives me comfort. That gives me great comfort that God Himself will pray what needs to be accomplished. He helps us in our weakness. And then thirdly, it says, we talked about how we wait. First of all, we wait because He helps us in our weakness. And then He helps us in our, to wait by knowing that our hope is sure. That's what we talked about when I said this morning, when you came in this morning and you witnessed these elements here on this table, what came to your heart? Is the first thing in some form, God is for me. I am so grateful for the mercy of God. I am so grateful for what this table represents to me. What I'm remembering as I see this table. That no longer is God against me, but He is my friend. You see, that's what happens when you begin to see that this hope is sure. It's not a hope-so kind of thing. It is a sure hope that we have because of what it's rooted in. And that's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Look down at verse 31 of that chapter 8. It says, What then shall we say to these things? And what we made reference to is the fact that Paul has already said up in the verses that come previous today that God is for you. In fact, that's where that whole statement where I said every ounce of suffering he will turn to good. All things work to good to them that love God. They're called according to His purpose. God is for you and working all things for your good. But then Paul comes down and it's such an overwhelming thought that he's had. He says, what shall we say in response to this? It is so amazing. I need to say it again. I need to drive this home so that they really, really hear it and understand it and internalize it. That's really what he's saying there. What shall we say in response to this? And he goes into another litany. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge? Who will bring any charge? The answer is no one. No one successfully. He's just overwhelmed with that. He's overwhelmed with the fact that God is for us. What what the glory of Christ speaks is that God is for us. There were three things in that passage that we see. It's the argument of the greater to the lesser. 
If God did the most difficult thing of giving up his son, the lesser thing is to, to do what he's promised to us, to bring us to himself. If he gave up the hardest thing, then the, the other things are, are no problem at all. The second thing that it says, no charge will stick. Who shall bring any charge? Satan will bring, ac- a- a- um, bring accusation, doesn't he? Maybe today Satan's brought accusation. Maybe as you came into the sanctuary this morning, you thought of something in your life where you had miserably failed God. Maybe it's something that nags you all the time. Every time you come into the worship service, something just rises up in your face. And there's accusation from Satan saying, how can you come with this? Or maybe it's something this week. Maybe something secretly this week. Some failure and you think, oh, oh. Satan brings it and throws it in your face. And the scripture says, who shall bring any charge? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And the answer is, no one successfully. Will Satan try? Yes. Will he raise it up? Will he throw it in your face? Yes. Will it be successful? No. If you're in Christ. No. He will not be successful in it. You see, that's why you can come. And when you see this, you can say, God is for me. He has borne the wrath for me for that sin. No one will bring any charge successfully. And the other thing about this that I haven't talked about yet is this statement. That in this passage in Romans chapter 8, it is not so much about the act that God has done, but the actor. And I see that in verse 33, right at the end. It says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then it says, it is God who justifies. Romans chapter 8 is certainly about what God has done, but it's really more about God. It's about God. God justifies on the basis of Christ, on the basis of what He's done. But you see, it's about the actor. It's about God. It's about His nature toward us if we're in Christ. And I say to you this morning, it is a sure hope. And if you don't have a sure, settled hope, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not over-exaggerating when you come in monthly and you see these elements. Is there something in your soul that says, God is for me? If you don't have that experience regularly in your life, you're wrestling, you'll struggle spiritually. Satan wants to keep you from that. In fact, what I'm going to challenge you in 2010 is to, to, to not get, if, if your experience at the beginning of that year is to, is to kind of be in and out, he loves me, he loves me not kind of idea about Christianity, that, that you'll determine in 2010 it's not going to be that way anymore. That I'm going to remedy this. That I'm going to fight this battle and Satan is not going to win in his charge against me. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to know how to handle that in the future. You see, God is the one who justifies. It is a hope that is sure. And if you're not sure of that hope, if you're not confident of that hope and where that hope rests, you just can't live out the Christian life. And then we turn to the last statement this morning, the last point of Advent, which I would have talked about last week, and I just briefly this morning. That is the hope 
but it frees us. All of the things I've just talked about. The fact that it releases us from the futility, ultimately. There's a hope that it will one day be gone. We can deal with the brokenness because God is releasing us from us, ultimately, in a place of a new heavens and a new earth. And secondly, a hope that, that He is with us in our weakness, that He strengthens us in our weakness. He doesn't leave it all to ourselves. He is with us. And hope that is sure. And that all leads to a hope that frees us. Christians ought to be the freest people on the planet. We ought to have a freedom in our lives to really live our lives. And I say that carefully. We, we don't want to live worldly lives, but we want to embrace this world. Christians ought to be able to, to appreciate this world in the right perspective better than anybody else. We can appreciate it. We don't hold it too tightly. We don't expect it and squeeze it to do things for us that only God can do and things that it can't do because of the futility. But we ought to be world-embracing people. We ought to be able to embrace the good things of this world, the good things that God gives us, the common grace of this world in amazing kinds of ways, in a kind of an abandonment to live out our lives because we're free. We're free. This isn't what is going to give us ultimate fulfillment. We can use it and then we leave it. It's gone. We don't hold it too tightly, but we appreciate what God has given us in it. And we embrace this world. We go out into this world to help others to get the perspective of the hope that we have in Christ. Um, The hope is the key. We, we are not to be, I think one of the dangers of Christianity is we get this kind of withdrawal kind of mentality that because this creation is subjected to futility, we just withdraw. We withdraw for 70 or 80 years. We live over here in this cocoon and eventually we'll get freed from it. I don't think that's the way God intended us to live. I intended us to live to embrace it, to go out into it, not, not in, to find sinful kinds of things, to, certainly to avoid those things, but to embrace our world, to engage our world in a kind of freedom that allows us to tell this world the things that we know. That the creation was subjected to futility. If you try to put all your apples in this basket, it will leave and come up empty in your lives. And you don't have to just hope kind of with a wishful kind of thinking that you will inherit eternal life, but you can know. You can know because of what Christ has done. And we, we move out and we embrace that kind of a world. And... And I believe that that kind of thing is what really motivates and launches us to, to freely live out life. Now, what I want to do is, is close by just tying this all together. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, he talks about the kinds of things in Romans chapter 8. Basically, the gospel. He talks about all that God has done. And in Romans chapter 12, the verse that was on the screen this morning, Paul abruptly changes gears. And he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, he takes 11 chapters and tells us what God has done. He says, embrace that. Put your hope in that. Cast yourself upon that. And then let it go out and change you as you go out into the world. Chapters 12 through the end of Romans, he says, now in view of those mercies, live this way. Embrace life this way. Live it as it talks about from Romans 12 on. Because of the sure settledness of what you know in your heart. 
live a gospel-centered life. Um, let, let what happens in your life flow out of a, a deepening understanding of the gospel of Christ and, and being sure of that. And so this morning, as we come to, uh, to this new decade, what I want to challenge you with is that you will make a decision in this year that if this isn't where you reside presently, that you are going to do everything you can to see more of the glory of Christ, more of what this table represents. That you're going to pursue that with a passionate pursuit. Because that's really what he says in in the first 11 chapters. He talks about that glory of Christ. And then he says, okay, now that you understand that, live this way. I think what people often do in the Christian life is rather than go through chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, they start in chapter 12. They, they think, now, this is what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. This is the, things that, the way I need to live. And so they, they start out on that journey from chapter 12 on, but they never internalize chapters 1 through 11. They never internalize the three points that I've had on the three successive Sundays that we've talked about. A hope that releases us from futility. And, and one day will give us a beautiful, a beautiful place as the heavens and the earth come together. A restoration back to what it was in the beginning. They don't think about that. They don't realize that in the midst of the weakness that they, they appropriate God's help. Think about it this week. How much did you appropriate God's help? How many times did in your weakness you call out to God and realize that He will help you in that weakness? And then thirdly, as you came in this morning, was there a sure settledness about what this table represents? That's where you begin. That's where the Christian life starts. Chapters 1 through 11. Understanding those things. Living those things out. Then it says, in view of God's mercy, then you jump into chapter 12 and you begin to live out the Christian life. But it is always lived out gospel-centric. Keeping the gospel as the motivating factor, as the thing that pushes you to live out this life of faith and, and life of, of the Christian. So this morning I say to you do, you, do you know that hope? Do you have that hope that frees you to live like that? To, to, to go out into this world and live it the way God wanted it to be lived. Go out and, and affect this world. For the sake of the glory of Christ. My prayer is it will be that kind of people. But it it happens again as we center on the glory of Christ. As we center on what this table represents to us. Do you see here that God is for you? Do you see that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will not he not graciously give us all things? Is that your view of God? Is that the view of the Christian life you have? pray it is. And I pray if it's not that 2010 will send you on a pursuit of that in your lives. Let's pray. Father, I just pray this morning that you will help us. As we come to this table this morning, Lord, it wouldn't just be routine. It wouldn't just be something we do once a month. But that, Father, your glory would, would burst forth from this table this morning. The glory of God in the face of Christ. And that we would understand, Lord, that what this table speaks to us is that you are for us. 
and not against us. That you're there for us in our weakness. And you give us a sure hope because it's based upon you, the God who justifies us. May we rest in that this morning. We pray you'll strengthen our soul, Lord, as we come to this table. And I pray that 2010 will be a pursuit more of seeing more and more of the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask those that are going to help us distribute the elements this morning to come take your place at the front of the sanctuary this morning. And we're going to distribute the elements to you this morning. Matthew's going to play for us. And as he plays, we're going to sing together two songs that center on what we've talked about this morning about the glory of Christ. Ask this morning that you hold the elements and we'll partake together. the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart, I know that while and he stands, no tongue can bid me then depart. No tongue can bid me then Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is Counted free for God the justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me Behold him there spotless righteousness the great unchangeable I am the king of glory and of grace one with himself I cannot die 
take this morning, let me, let me just practically give you a picture here of, of what it means to have a gospel-centric life in light of these three things. First one this morning, when I said that he subjected his creation in futility. So how do you live gospel-centric in that? When you face that futility, you just acknowledge it's part of God's judgment on sin, not necessarily your individual sin, but just sin in general, but that one day it will be gone. In other words, it's come, it's futile, you recognize this life is not an end all, and you look to heaven. You look to one day when it's all going to be gone. That's what you do. Second thing, when you're in the midst of that weakness, you don't know what to do. You don't know where to, where to go. How do you live a gospel-centric life? God entered into the brokenness, into your weakness. Ask Him to help you. Ask Him to help you. He graciously wants to give you all things that you need. Let's take and eat and be grateful. represents to us the blood of Christ. Take again and hold it and we'll partake together. Forbears, be 
the chief of sinners best. So many times my heart. 